Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. So this reading comes from John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who, was, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you, Micah. Yes, Micah, you have a great ability in reading and I really enjoy listening to you. And I enjoyed listening to you when you were reading to us last year on the stream. So thank you for, for using that ability. It's great to be here again with you this week. And I want to thank... Uh, Beck for reminding us about the people in Myanmar today. And um, yeah, I don't know if you know, there's a lot of Burmese people here in Victoria. In fact, the second biggest Baptist church in Victoria, after Crossway Baptist Church, you know that church, a very big church, is actually a Burmese chin church. It's massive, yeah. So there are a lot, a lot of big chin uh, churches. There are also Korean churches. Uh, and so there are a lot of people in, um, in Victoria 
just having a few problems with the thing, I think, uh, in Victoria, who, uh, who have fled persecution in Myanmar and have come to seek refuge here. And I know they're very concerned uh, for their own people. So we need to stand with them. I want to encourage you to pray for them this week, uh, particularly about the situation there. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that you've brought us here today to worship. We thank you for our youth and young adults and the energy they have. We thank you that they're on a journey, seeking to follow you. And uh, Lord, I thank you for all the people who work in that ministry, uh, seeking to talk to them about Jesus and to lead by example and to, um, yeah, to form a community in that, uh, in that youth and young adult scene. So I want to pray your blessing upon them. I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us through the word this morning as we go on with our series about uh, finding our shape so that we can serve you effectively today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, um, or many years ago, a few years before I was actually born, uh, the North American Space Agency, NASA, landed a spacecraft on the moon. And uh, a lot of you remember it, Neil Armstrong was the first person to actually walk on another, uh, I guess, satellite. It's not technically a planet, the moon, is it? Uh, in our solar system. He was the first person to walk on another place outside of the Earth uh, in our uh, from our, from our uh, society, from our human society. And so it was a truly amazing and captivating event. It captivated the whole world. In fact, we watched it on TV. Well, I didn't actually, but I watched it later. But if you had a TV back then, then you would have been glued to it. And uh, those images, those black and white images were transmitted across the vast oceans of space into our living rooms. And we all sat there just amazed. And we heard the words of Neil Armstrong tell us. Uh, he said, it's uh, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And uh, I always find those, uh, even they sort of give me a little prickly feeling as I hear those words and see him step off uh, onto the onto the, you know, onto the moon. Now, I remember the event, not because I watched it live, I was two years old, but I remember it because my parents bought me a Billy Blastoff spaceman and I had a space, sort of, you know, space, space vehicle that, uh, that I spent many hours playing with and imagining myself as Neil Armstrong doing this sort of great thing of landing on the moon and taking my first step there. And so over this past week, we've also been captivated again, haven't we, by uh, the landing on Mars of the, of the rover, Perseverance, and that footage that's coming back about that. We, and so what we think again, it's a great, great experience. And so today, greatness is actually uh, defined popularly as by what we achieve as people. Also by how powerful a person is, or how much wealth they have, 
or how many people actually serve them. They're the sort of categories we use in our own minds. These are the popular categories that we use to talk about greatness. In fact, in Sweden and Norway each year, a group of people award the, uh, the Nobel Prize to five worthy and exceptional people or groups they believe uh, have served humanity through science, literature and also by bringing about peace. And some notable people have actually won that prize and we, we sort of know them, you know, Nelson Mandela and uh, uh, Barack Obama, Malala Yousafzai, the 17-year-old girl, remember her from Pakistan, who courageously campaigned against uh, for education for all people, including girls, and she continues to do that. So I'm all in favour of shooting for the stars. You know, if I had my chance, no, I wouldn't be in the rocket, but I'd be watching. Uh, I'm all in favour of shooting to the stars and, and exploring our universe. And I'm all in favour of making our world a better place. We need to do that. That's what, that's what it's about. We need to sort of do the best we can while we're here. But Jesus challenges this popular notion that greatness is equated with achievement and it's, and it's equated with power, wealth, and actually it's equated with how many people serve us. People, Jesus challenges that idea. In fact, Jesus measures greatness using a completely different scale. He says that true greatness is demonstrated through self-sacrificing service for others through self-sacrificing service for others. Over the past, uh, can't seem to move it along. Yep, there we go. Over the past few um, weeks, I've been saying that each of us needs to find our shape. And so by now you probably know what the acronym shape means, our spiritual gifts, our heart's desires, our abilities, our personal uh, our sort of um, personalities and our life experiences. And these go into helping us uh, know where we should be serving God. And so knowing your shape and serving according to your shape is important. And I believe that we all need to do some work actually in this area to know those things. We don't want to be lazy about that. We need to sort of do some work and uh, discover what they are if we want to be fruitful and live fulfilled lives. And if we're going to be a fruitful community, I think we need to find those together. But this week, I want to suggest that it's not only knowing your shape and serving according to that shape that's required. Jesus also tells us that we need to have the heart of a servant in order to act like servants. And we need that because we want to be available to, to serve in every opportunity of need that we find ourselves in and not just according to those that suit our shape. Without a servant's heart, we'll be actually tempted to use uh, our shape to serve only our needs and our purposes, to get our own fulfilment. Or we'll exempt ourselves from service that we don't think is worthy or we don't think actually fits our shape or our abilities, or our spiritual gifts. For example, if we come across someone in need, someone who's, say, fallen over, or someone who is in distress, then God ex expects us to help them out and not say, oh, well, 
you know, the spiritual gift of helping is not really my primary gift. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'll leave that to someone else, whoever they are. So your primary ministry and your primary service, yes, it should be in the area of your shape, according to your spiritual gifts, your heart's desire, your abilities and so forth. But your secondary service and, and thirdly service, if I can use that term, should be according to whatever, the need, whatever is needed in the situation that you find yourself in. Many of us like the idea of service, especially noble service. Just about everyone will rise to the occasion if they're asked or called on to, be, to do something significant for a very short time. The disciples were good at doing noble and noteworthy service. It was relatively easy for them to step up and direct the crowd uh, at, uh, or serve people after Jesus had just performed the miracle. What they actually struggled with was serving people in ordinary, unspectacular and hidden ways. And I suspect that we can all struggle with that as well. This, this was a situation the disciples found themselves in when they came to Jerusalem to share in the Passover feast just before Jesus was crucified. The disciples thought, thought actually right up until the death of Jesus um, that he was actually heading to Jerusalem uh, to take control of Israel. They thought that he was actually going to install this big new political uh, system where he was governing everyone. And they thought that they were going to play a key and noteworthy role in what he was going to do in this new government. So the disciples all thought greatness in terms of power, prestige and, and being served by others. And they thought that as Jesus rose in greatness, they would rise with him. Before getting to Jerusalem, Mark records a conversation that James and John had with Jesus. Now, James and John were two of Jesus' disciples. And they took him aside on the road one day, just before they got to Jerusalem, and they said to him, uh, look, we want you to give us the two top positions you know, in, the, in, the new, in the new kingdom that you're establishing. It was a breathtaking grab for power. They say, let us, let one of us sit at your right hand and one of us sit at your left hand. Now they're the, you know, they're the big positions when you get to glory. And their glory was obviously sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Now we might think, oh, how base, how tactless of James and John for, do, for asking that. But they were not the only ones actually who wanted those two positions. The other disciples actually were mad with James and John for asking Jesus for them. But they weren't mad that they sort of asked Jesus for the wrong, they thought they were, that they were asking Jesus for the wrong thing. No, they weren't mad because of that. They were actually mad because James and John actually beat them to the punchline. They beat them to asking Jesus for those positions because they actually wanted them themselves. But Jesus wasn't having any of it. And he knew what was in their hearts. And he actually rebuked them about their attitude. He says to them that the world, meaning all of us, every one of us, 
seeks after greatness by grabbing for power, by getting people to serve them. But then he says, but not so with you. He said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is actually giving his disciples and us this morning his own definition of greatness. Being great, Jesus says, is not about having power and influence or even or even actually serving others in a way that's noteworthy or exceptional that makes us look good. But being great, he says, means actually having a servant heart so that you can actually act like a servant according to whatever need is presented. Being a servant is actually at the core of who Jesus is. Although he's the King of Kings, he's the Lord of Lords, he actually came into the world to liberate people from sin and death, but he doesn't come to do that, doesn't come and force that by force or with coercion. He liberates people actually through his own suffering, taking on himself our grubbiness and our garbage that's in our lives. Jesus' death and resurrection are actually, and this is the way he wants us to think about it, they're actually the, they're the acts of ultimate self-sacrifice for all people. The act, the actual act of service, the greatest act of service that there ever has been. Jesus tells us that once they all got to Jerusalem, after their trek up there, they, uh, they organised a Passover feast, which all the disciples and Jesus attended. And then when partway through this feast, Jesus demonstrates what he had actually told them on the road previously, that greatness is shown by serving others and not in being served. And so here we heard it. Micah told us that, in, that Jesus gets up from the table where he's sitting and he strips off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around his waist and he fills a basin with water and he begins to wash his disciples' feet one by one. Now, washing, people, washing people's feet is an odd thing for us. We, we don't really get it. It's not part of Aussie culture at all. We don't get the significance of what Jesus was doing here because we all wear shoes and uh, our feet are relatively clean. When you take your shoes off at night, they might sort of smell a bit, but they look like pretty much pristine. We might take our shoes off when we visit someone's home or uh, if, if we've got dirt on them, but most of the time people leave them on. But foot washing in the Middle East was actually something that happened all the time when people entered someone's home because actually people, it was a really, really dusty place and people, you know, they didn't have nice leather boots like I've got on today. They had these sort of sandals or bare feet and, and people's feet were really, really dirty. And so foot washing is actually meant to take place when a person first enters a building or before they sit down and, and do something significant. People at that time, you know, we get this picture of the Lord's Supper with people sitting on this bench-like table on chairs, like, like we do, but actually that's not how people ate in the Middle East. They, laid, they ate actually on really low tables, special tables, where they sort of reclined 
uh, around each other with their feet poking in all sorts of different directions. And uh, the last thing you wanted was someone's smelly feet near your face when you're trying to eat something nice. Ooh, what's that? Ooh. This meant that food, foot washing was necessary and common at that time. In fact, we, knew, we know about this already because actually earlier in John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus went to Nicodemus' house. And there in Nicodemus' house, uh, Jesus actually scolds Nicodemus, who's this sort of rabbi, a teacher of God's law. He'd invited him for a meal. He scolds Nicodemus for not being a good host because he hadn't provided someone to wash his feet. seems that Nicodemus didn't respect Jesus. But there's also protocols for who washes feet. It was meant to be done by a servant, according to that culture, or someone who's of lower status. It was, was never meant to be done, or, or, it, or it became a custom that it was never done by a peer, you know, someone who was on the same level of you as you, and it was never done by a teacher, someone who was above you in your social, social strata. So here we have this problem, don't we? Because here at the Passover meal, the disciples are all there, Jesus is there, the disciples are all feeling very pious and religious because they've come to remember you know, what Moses did and God did in rescuing the people of Israel out of slavery on this religious occasion. But Jesus reminds them or calls out really their hypocrisy because you see all of, all of them had actually gone into this meal with dirty feet because not one of them wanted to humble themselves before the others and serve them by washing their feet. None of them wanted to serve their peers by getting dirty and washing their feet. They all considered that type of service to be below them. They were happy to direct the crowd. They're happy to, they were happy to play this role of gatekeepers, preventing or letting people in to see Jesus. They were happy... Um, holding the money or handing out bread and the, uh, and the fish after the miracle because these were all noteworthy and exceptional types of service that fit their profile for who they thought they should be. But none of them in the upper room that night had a servant's heart or offered to serve according to the need that was right there in front of them. In washing their feet, Jesus shows us in a really concrete way that the values of his kingdom are completely different to those of the world and, and actually different to the values that the, the disciples were holding themselves. Perhaps they're even different to the ones we have ourselves. He says to them that he'd come not to be served but to serve and in doing so, Jesus redefines what greatness is. But what Jesus did was shocking to the disciples. Okay, Imagine this, it's like the Queen coming to today to visit you in your house. And instead of you welcoming her and giving her a seat and serving her a cup of tea, curtsying or bowing or whatever we do, suddenly she bursts out of that seat spies the apron, puts it on, serves you, gets the broom, the dustpan and the mop and starts cleaning your house. 
Unthinkable, right? Shocking, right? You'd just be like, what? You see, it wasn't the foot washing that shocked or embarrassed the disciples. You see, they're used to foot washing. They wanted someone to wash their feet. They're used to it. It was that Jesus, their teacher, their Lord, was actually doing this lowly role. That's what shocked them. That's what makes it so unpalatable for them. But Jesus isn't just adding an object lesson here to what he said back there on the road about needing to be servants. He, he's also um, signifying to them and to us something much, much more than that, that we need to grasp if we want to be servants. You see, in Peter's refusal to allow Jesus to wash his feet and Jesus telling him that he must allow him to do so, Jesus is telling him that followers of Jesus, followers of his, can only serve him after they've been washed themselves. He knows that they would not be able to be hum- they'd not be able to humble themselves and wash other people's feet. They wouldn't be able to do lowly works of service until they first grasp the significance of Jesus serving service of dying for them on the cross or until they receive the Holy Spirit into their lives who actually gives them the power to be humble to do that. And this is also the same for us as well, friends. You see, just about anyone can rise to the occasion and do an act of noble service. We see that all the time. It's common to do things that are great in the world's eyes, but only those who accept Jesus' suffering service and grasp that he actually suffered and died for them and received the gift of the Holy Spirit can offer continued humbled service to other people, to the marginalised, to the hard-to-love people. John, the same John who had asked just previously to sit at Jesus' right hand, he actually came to understand this logic after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything became clearer after the death and resurrection of Jesus and with the giving of the Holy Spirit. In John 1 John 4.10, he says, This is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins when we didn't deserve it. Without an experience of God's self-sacrificing love by way of Jesus offering up his life to us, we will be ill-equipped to truly love and serve anyone at any time, especially those who are hard to love, and we'll be unable to serve with humility as we need to serve. Each year, the committee overseeing that Nobel Prize, they actually select five winners, only five people. And these are people who are identified as offering exceptional and noteworthy service to humanity. What those five people do is wonderful. It really is. It's amazing. But what the world needs is not just five exceptional and noteworthy people, but all of God's people to grasp Jesus' own definition of greatness and to have servants' hearts so that we can act as servants in servant ways whenever and 
wherever we encounter need. This is, this is the sort of service that will transform the world in which we live. Andre Nouwen uh, is an example of someone who grasped Jesus' definition of greatness and allowed Jesus to transform his heart for service to people whom the world considers marginal and unimportant. In many ways, Andre Nouwen literally took off his outer garments in the form of his achievements and the things that gave him dignity and noteworthiness and he humbled himself and served lowly people who were in great need. You see, Henry Nouwen is a celebrated author and a great scholar. In fact, you'll find his books on many bookshelves of uh, people who are in ministry around Australia and around the world today. If they haven't got a book on his bookshelf, then they would know of him and they would have read something that he'd written. He's a prolific writer, celebrated author, but he's not just an author. He, uh, he's also been on, the, uh, been on faculty in some of the most prestigious universities in the world, and Notre Dame, Yale and Harvard, for many years. But with all these great achievements and noteworthy work, he felt this call to, to leave all that and live and work at La Arche, at the Daybreak Centre, which is a residential community that serves 100 intellectually and physically impaired people. Honor and Nouwen's life has been so deeply, deeply touched by Jesus that it's transformed him and given him a joy of service, not, just, not service just according to his shape. Because he's exceptionally talented, so many abilities. But he has experienced Jesus' self-sacrificing service in such a way that it's enabled him to go and wash other people's feet, even the feet of the most lowly people in society today. Now, and has been transformed by his experience so much that he says that he sees the intellectually impaired people in a different way. And I love this quote of his. He says, the daybreak community, this intellectually and physically disabled community. He says it exists not to help the mentally handicapped get normal, but to help them share their spiritual gifts with the world. The poor of spirit are given to us for our conversion. In their poverty, the mentally handicapped reveal God to us and hold us close to the gospel. Friends, this is the sort of conversion that we need to have as well if we're going to be defined as great by Jesus. In the upper room that night, Peter refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet. No, nah, he said, no. Nah. But Jesus told him that if he did not allow him to wash him, then he had no part in him. Today you can't have a part in Jesus either or a part to play in Jesus' mission, unless you admit that you need washing yourself, unless you accept that Jesus, unless you accept what Jesus has done to make you clean. But in the upper room that night, there were other disciples as well. They they responded differently to Peter. They willingly let Jesus wash their feet. They were proud and allowed him to serve them, but they refused to serve others whom they saw as below them in status. 
But Jesus still washed their feet, even though he knew of their pride, and he's also willing to wash your feet today as well if you will let him. It doesn't require a specific gift or ability to wash feet, nor does it require special spiritual gifts or abilities to stay after the service and wipe down the pews or stack up the chairs. Anyone can do these sorts of things. What doing these jobs requires is a servant heart and a willingness to act as a servant in every and any situation that you encounter. Therefore, we, what we all need today, along with knowing our shape, is a servant's heart so that we can act in servant ways, which actually only a relationship with Jesus can form in you. How do you know then that you, whether you have a servant's heart? Perhaps you're wondering that. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 16, that you can know a tree by its fruit, which means by which he meant that you can know a person's heart by their actions. So let me finish suggesting to you five ways that true servants act that reflects a servant's heart. And I'll just do this very briefly. First, a servant-hearted person is someone who makes themselves available to serve. They put their hands up first and do what is needed, even when it's outside their normal shape of ministry. And so the question is, are you available to be used by God at any time and for anything, or do you only serve when it suits you? Secondly, a person with a servant's heart or acts like a servant, is attentive to people's needs. These servants are always on the lookout for ways to help others. In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. A person with a servant's heart will be alert to the needs of others around them, not looking for spectacular and noteworthy opportunities to serve, but to serve those whom God has placed in front of them that day. Third, people with a servant's heart serve wholeheartedly. Paul told the Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. No matter what the Lord brings before you to do, we need to do it with the same wholehearted attitude because ultimately, whatever we're doing, we're actually serving God. Whether you are preparing a Bible study, serving tea and coffee after the church, whether you are uh, cleaning the church, helping out at youth group, they all need to be done with the same wholehearted attitude. And so Jesus models that. He, he models doing menial things. He washed people's feet. He listened and helped little children. He served lepers and outcasts. He even cooked breakfast for his disciples. Nothing was too menial for him. Fourth, the servant-hearted person, uh, the servant-hearted are faithful in following through with the tasks that they've been given. Did I go to four? They keep their promises and see through their commitments. Today, the word commitment is actually a four-letter word. People break commitments for all sorts of reasons. What this means is that each week, well, it means a whole lot of things, actually, in a whole range of areas, but I'm not going to go into them today. 
But what it means for a church like ours and churches around Australia is that um, we have to make do, we have to improvise because volunteers don't show up or they don't show up on time or they don't prepare or don't do what they're expected to do. But a servant-hearted person is a person who's faithful to following through with the task that they've put their hand up for or been given. And lastly, the servant-hearted serve without the need for recognition. Servant-hearted are not looking for public applause or seeking to be seeking for ways to be noteworthy. They're willing to work out of the spotlight because they're only seeking to please God. In eternity, God is going to reward all the unseen servants, the people who, who didn't win the Nobel Prize, people who are mostly we've never heard of and never will hear of. God knows, though, who they are. They're the ones who cared for the disabled, helped elderly people, cleaned them up when they were incontinent, swept them mop toilet floors, spent time in kitchens preparing meals for marginalised people, took people on camps, cooked on camps, carried young people around. They're the people who are serving in thousands and thousands of unspectacular ways, but who have understood and embraced Jesus' own definition of greatness, which is to serve sacrificially and not seek to be served. Friends, Jesus has set us an example to follow. He modelled that for the disciples and for us, how he expects us to minister in the world. In order to act like a servant, you need to have a servant's heart. In order to act like a servant, you need you need to have a servant's heart. But also, Jesus knew that serving in this way is not possible without us first experiencing his self-sacrificing service of laying down his life for us. That's where it all stems from. Today, if you want to serve and you haven't experienced Jesus washing you, then I want to encourage you and I want to invite you to allow him to do this for you now. You can't be the kind of servant God wants without experiencing the cleansing of Jesus and the filling of his spirit. It's impossible. You can try, and many people do, but you won't be able to sustain it without the power of the spirit of God who enables us to do the the low things in life. For others here today who have already experienced Jesus washing, then today Jesus is wanting you to listen to his words afresh and see his actions again for what they are because he's wanting to refresh your servant's heart this morning, I believe, so that you can begin again doing servant acts that will be a blessing to others and which will ultimately glorify God. Let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for, uh, for, your, for Jesus' example of washing uh, the disciples' feet. It's a powerful act that you've redefined greatness in self-sacrificial service to others. Lord, you want us to serve. You want us to do lowly acts of service, not just according to our shape, but as we see people in need. Help us to reflect on that this week. Help us to examine our own hearts this morning and see if we are open to having a servant heart. And if we aren't, help us to ask you to refresh our hearts or ask you to clean our hearts this morning so that we can do that. 
And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.